Our text this morning, as we continue on in the book of Hebrews, is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Again, page 1205, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Uh, just delight to have you follow along in our text this morning. You might remember how we addressed two weeks ago the beginning of this section and that in that discussion we addressed how here in Hebrews 12 and particularly verse 3 to the end of the book of Hebrews is the concluding application that our author brings to us out of this great, great book. Really the capstone of Jesus' ultimate superiority is this application. We also mentioned that this application all has a very specific purpose. And that purpose being to make that great doctrinal section more than just head knowledge. The knowledge of doctrine must change your heart. You can be in the best teaching church in America. But if it doesn't affect a heart change in your life, then it is of little value. This is exactly the message that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 where he says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. These acts, as we've often described, are ongoing acts. That continual confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And then that continual heart Evidence of obedience pouring out, as it were, from God's word to you and into your life and into all around you. Such a beautiful picture. And so we continue in this incredible section of application this morning, seeking to have our hearts changed. And as we do so, we again come to our text and our title for this morning's message. I've titled this message, Divinely Demanded Discipline. Divinely Demanded Discipline. We'll call this part two because this is the continuation of our beginning from a couple weeks back. Let's take a look at our text, Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read through it and then make a few comments for you as we unpack what the Lord has for us this morning. I'm going to go back and begin at verse 1 of chapter 12, even though we've covered this section, just because it is a continuation and the context all flows together. So follow along as I read Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
divinely demanded discipline. Verse 1 shows us the need to make application a hard issue right out of the box. Namely, so that we can run the race. Our lives, beloved, as we discussed in that text, are like a marathon. And the race is to be motivated by all the faithful saints around us. All of the Old Testament saints who we look back on and understand all of their work and all of their achievements and accomplishments through Christ's strength. And also all of the faithful in our lives. Those from the New Testament right up to today. Those who have shared the gospel with you. Pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, husbands, wives, others who have poured into you, who have made an impact on your lives. These are the ones that encourage us to run this race, to stay strong. Because as they have run and exceeded, so we also know that we are to do likewise, and we can do likewise. And that's a great encouragement, because sometimes we think, I just don't know that I can do this. It just gets too hard for me. But as we look at these others, we know, yes, it's wonderful to look at, at Abraham and Moses. It's wonderful to, to look at David and Paul and all of the faithful. But it is great to look at those that are in the pews around you and say, look at this one and that one and see what the Lord is doing through them. And I too can persevere as they persevere. What a blessing for us to see these victories that they have achieved by overcoming obstacles again in Christ's strength and conquering the encumbrances and the sins. And we've talked about how those encumbrances are those things that come and they hold us back, the things that tie us down and that do not allow us to move forward. Not the sins, perhaps the thought life, perhaps the, the things that we can't simply move past to obedience. And then, of course, there are the sin items as well. All of these things which keep us from running the race that we must shed and move ahead. And not only is our race to be motivated by the faithful of all ages, but as verse 2 told us, it is to be run by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Every step of our race must be in accord with Jesus. This is what Jesus was telling the disciples that they needed to stay focused on him and that they needed to follow him. This as he told them in Mark 1:17, where he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here were these fishermen from Galilee and the Lord said, come and follow me, do as I do. And this same picture is for us, beloved. Jesus' life is painted and beautifully laid out in the scripture for us to follow. And we must fix our eyes on him as we move ahead. Then in verse 3, we got to our first point of our message. And we saw discipline strength there in verse 3. And it reminds us of Jesus' great struggle. The verse commands us to think carefully about all that Jesus went through in his life. Well, we don't have to consider long for the pages of Scripture are replete with all of the struggle that our Lord went through. From literally the beginning of his life onward, from being born as the poorest of poor in a manger, that which we have just celebrated and I pray celebrate every day of our lives in the gift of our Savior, all the way through the struggles that he had growing up, as he started his ministry and, 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 and faced attack from every front, faced hostility, as the text tells us, from his family, his brothers and sisters rebuking him and having nothing to do with him, believing nothing of what he said. The Pharisees and others continually on attack from him, even his own disciples, who often just never got it. And, of course, the end of his life ending in the most horrific struggle conceivable. But the point of the consideration of Jesus is to result in strength. This is the disciples' strength. As Jesus endured, so we too must endure. As he did not grow weary, so we are not to grow weary. We will not face the battles and struggles that he did. And we have his strength and his spirit which he has promised us so that we can continue on as he did. And when we become weary... For surely we will. It is Jesus himself who is our strength. 
He is our strength in considering his life. And this is the beautiful message that he proclaimed to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That, that can be us, beloved. We can be those weary and heavy laden as the struggles of life, the difficulties uh, of affliction, of turmoil, of sickness, of financial challenges, of spiritual difficulties. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29 says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we march through this life, we have our Lord to look to, to know that he calls us to say, yoke with me in that picture of those two oxen that are put into that wood yoke and are pulling that plow through the field. And here we are yoking alongside of the Lord and Savior, alongside of the creator of heaven and earth. And he said, just pull along with me. Well, I think that's a pretty good match for us. I mean, if, I'm gonna, if we're going to go, I always I was loved playing defensive end. And I loved being next to the tackle who was the biggest guy on the team. Because it always made you look good. Because there were about three guys trying to look for him and you could just skirt around the outside. Well, I'll tell you what. When we are yoking with Jesus, when we are pulling with him, we are in the best position we could be, beloved. And that's exactly where he wants us. So this is, the, this is discipline strength. And then in verse 3, as we concluded that, we move to our second point in discipline struggle in verses 4 to 6. And, and that struggle is evident in verse 4 where it talks about resisting sin at the end of the verse. Although a battle exists, it was only being mildly waged. The struggle that they were going through was, was rather mundane. But verse 5 shows even a more condition than this mild struggle. Namely, that they had forgotten what the point of discipline was. So the Lord reproves them for, for forgetting. But like all scripture, the application is not just to the audience of the Hebrews, beloved. But it is to us as well. We too forget the importance of discipline. And soon we start considering discipline as something which is to be avoided at all costs. I just don't want to go through that. You know, we all remember as children and we would, uh, we would get spanked a few times and we would learn kind of how to work the system a little bit. I'd love to say that I was an obedient child and I, I realized that that was wrong and I needed to do what was right, but that really wasn't me. Now, I just wanted to figure out how to work the system so that I didn't get spankings anymore. Whatever it took. Well, we can kind of be that way too in our Christian life. We don't, we're not ready to, to take that discipline of the Lord. We really just want to kind of find a way to skirt it because it's just not much fun. So if I can avoid that, that's going to be a whole lot better for me. Well, that's exactly what they had done. And it's exactly what the Lord rebukes them for. He reproves them for forgetting all of this. Because that is not the biblical pattern. And the rest of verses 5 and 6 confirm the importance of discipline. Namely, that it's an indication of God's love. How important is that? How critical is it that we understand that we are loved by the creator of heaven and earth? Because as we understand that love, even on an earthly level, does it not give us strength and comfort? You know, we, we recently picked up a, a, a new puppy in our home. And, and, and she is just adorable. But she was a little skittish. She was the, the runt of the litter. And it was hard to kind of get connected with her. But once she realized that we were there to care for her and to, and, to, and to, you know, just love on her, well, she was all about just climbing up in our arms. Well, that's how we are too. That's how we are in our earthly relationships. How much more in our divine relationship when we realize that we are loved by Christ. Are we ready to climb up? Are we ready to obey? Are we ready to grow in what it means to live in light of his word? Well, that happens through discipline. And we spent much time on these over the last two weeks, or two weeks ago rather, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those details and the many vital elements of, of that section as we just kind of covered them briefly. 
But verses 5 and 6 do indicate the subject and source of our title that is namely divinely demanded discipline. Our subject of discipline there in verses 5 and 6 is shown and, and its source as the Lord is also shown. So as we consider discipline struggle, we recognize that this struggle comes from the Lord. And that led us to our third point, which is discipline's structure. Discipline's structure in verses 7 to 11. There's really two separate components of discipline that we see in these verses. One is earthly and one is heavenly. And there's a contrast and a comparison that is made throughout our section of Scripture. We began to look last time at verse 7, but let's refresh ourselves on that verse. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We notice in verse 7 that both the earthly and the heavenly perspectives are revealed. We see the, the parallel and the contrast already coming forward. The discipline both of our heavenly and earthly fathers shown there. We just saw one of the important elements of discipline in verse 6. That is that discipline is an indication of God's love. Now we see a second important element of discipline. That is that discipline produces endurance. We illustrated that this last week by considering two children. One young child that was disciplined in a biblical fashion as he was reared, and another one who had no discipline. And the result of both of those children. The result of the second one, without the discipline, was one who would run amok, and who would not pay attention, and who would likely end up in, in a world of problems, seeking to find his own way and do things according to his own plan. That one who was raised according to biblical discipline would yet better understand and would better realize that there was a plan and a way in which things were to be done and would seek to do so in that way and therein would have greater endurance and greater perseverance realizing that there was a, a manner and a mechanism and a mode by which we must follow all things in our lives. Verse 7 next emphasized a similar point to 6 particularly that God deals with us as sons. God deals with us as sons. Verse 6 told us that the Lord disciplines every son whom he receives. So God's discipline is an act confirming our adoption. God will discipline all his children at some point, and for some perhaps repeatedly. So if we are here today and, and if we have not yet experienced the discipline of the Lord, we can be certain that we will, for the Scripture does tell us that He disciplines every son whom He loves. And then in the middle of verse 7, we transition to the second subject, that is to that of our earthly father. And we're told that discipline is part and parcel of a father's role. So then we can make assessment that if we are to be biblical fathers, then discipline is something that is going to be required from our hand. We looked at about five different forms of earthly discipline from Proverbs last time, and again, you can go back and reaffirm those points. But the first part of discipline structure is that discipline is a positive and essential part of an earthly father's role. That is discipline structure. It is to say the structure which God designed. Our discussion of earthly fathers continues in verse 8 where it says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Only verse 8 now contrasts what was said in verse 7. Verse 7 saw the positive connection of a father's role in discipline. Now in verse 8, we see those without discipline. And this verse is a conditional structure, which we've often talked about, that if-then condition. There is, a, there is a parallel set up that if this event occurs, then the second is likely or certain to follow. So if one is without discipline, then you are illegitimate and not children at all. Such a one is an outcast. He is, he is illegitimate or he is not a son. 
In the Greek language, this was used to describe one who was born of a concubine. Thus, one having no rightful inheritance and no possession from a father, perhaps not even recognizing that father. It would be as if he literally had no father. The absurdity of this concept is further expressed by the phrase in the middle of verse 8 where it says, of which all have become partakers. All true sons have received discipline. Well, this verse highlights the problem we earlier mentioned. That, that is the difficulty of discipline and that some believers were trying to run from this. They were trying to avoid discipline at all costs. This is the condition that we saw with Jonah. Not so much at the beginning where he fled to Tarshish as at the end. The beginning is still in view, but it is God's repeated discipline at the end of Jonah that becomes so telling. Let me share with you just a little bit of those verses at the end of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah has come. He didn't want to go to Tarshish, as we recall in the first part of the book. The Lord told him to go. He said, I'll go anywhere. Or he wants him to go to Nineveh, and he runs to Tarshish. He's on the ship, and there's the big, the big storm, and they throw him over, and he is swallowed by the great fish that is designed for that. He is spewed up onto the beach, and then he says, okay, you've got my attention, Lord, I'll go. So he goes on to Nineveh, but he doesn't want to go. And we find out that the reason he doesn't want to go is that he doesn't want to see these wicked Ninevites given an opportunity to repent and to come to know God. Well, of course... As chapter 3 tells us, that's just what happened. And in Jonah 4, we see this where it says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, Lord, oh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So Jonah's in a big pout, because this is just what's happened, exactly what he expected. He went to the Ninevites and said, you're a wicked bunch, and God is going to judge you. The king heard, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he ordered all of Nineveh to repent, and they did. And Jonah is upset about it, and he is putting on a hissy fit and a pout like you can't believe. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Like, really? And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, so he, he's, he's kind of manic here. He goes from totally upset and angry and wanting to, the Lord to take his life to all of a sudden he's extremely happy. Oh great, I got a little shade plant as I'm watching what's happening. Verse 7 of chapter 4, But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on a plant? For which you did not work, and with which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? Jonah is pouting. Jonah is avoiding discipline. Jonah is saying, you know, Lord, I should have it my way. Well, we can be the same way as Jonah. When discipline comes, we can want to run from that discipline. We can be those who say, I don't want anything to do with discipline. This is not something this, that I should have to endure. And as we do, 
We are those who are acting just like Jonah. We are acting like illegitimate children if we would do so. This is the very thing that Job's wife told him that he ought to do as well. And in Job 2.10, he responds to her, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Discipline will come. But how much good do we have? As we reflect upon our lives, we are the most blessed people of all time ever upon this planet in this country. What a glorious gift God has given to us to live in this land. What a glorious blessing it is to live here in this part of this state. The, the beauty of the weather, the, the gulf and the glorious sand and all of the things we get to enjoy. How many good things in addition to that has God given to us? Homes and cars and loved ones and children and on and on and on and on abundantly, infinitely. And are we those who would not receive as well discipline from his hand. Beloved, this is such a vital lesson. And a lesson that verse 8 tells us we must understand or we are not children. That is to say we are not God's children. We are not believers in the Most High God. Verse 9 initially continues the theme of our earthly fathers where it begins, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Honoring our father's discipline. Now, I don't think I was a very good honorer of my dad's discipline when it was coming. When the belt came out, I wasn't excited about it. When it over, I still wasn't excited about it. There was no thankfulness in my heart. There was no joy, there was no gratitude for realizing that I had done wrong and that he had been gracious in not beating me repeatedly like I probably deserved. There is this understanding, though now as a father, now that I have had to discipline my children, I have a deeper understanding of the difficulty that my father went through. I have a respect for him, for what he did knowing how desperately I needed it and probably how much more I needed it. This is the understanding that verse 9 is telling us about. Our earthly fathers discipline us and we are to respect them. It, it, it builds our relationship, frankly. And we'll see more of that come to light as we move along through the text. And then we excuse me, transition from our earthly fathers back to our heavenly fathers in the middle of verse 9 where it says shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live the phrase father of spirits is not addressing the holy spirit because spirits is plural there at the end of verse 9 and there is only one holy spirit which then would be singular so we know he is speaking about our spirits. And what we see here in this, in this parallel is that there are contrasts of two types of fathers here in verse 9. The father of spirits and our earthly fathers. Earthly fathers is literally translated out of the Greek fathers of our flesh. So we have father of spirits, a singular father with many immortal spirits who is God the Father. And we have our fathers of the flesh, plural, many fathers of our earthly, fleshly existence. Now, some have seen this parallel to address the origin of the soul. This gets into the deep theological waters where we start talking about concepts like uh, the origin of the soul as creationism or traditionism, and we are not going there. But it is good for us to understand that although this does not dive into that point deeply, that there is important information in that discussion here. But what we notice is that there are three comparisons that arise in this text as we consider the fathers of our flesh versus the father of our spirit. These three comparisons are very important for us and give us great insight. The, the first kind of comparison we see is we see the kind of fathers that are compared. The kind of fathers. Next in verse 9 we see the time of their being fathers compared. The time. 
of their being fathers. And lastly, we see our relation to them. Now first, the kind of fathers that are compared. We have earthly fathers, that is fathers of our flesh. And so those fathers, they govern and they have authority over the details of our bodily existence. In contrast to that, our heavenly father is the father of our spirits. That is, our spirits which are eternal. So the fathers of our flesh have authority over us in our fleshly existence. The father of spirits in our eternal existence. An important distinction. So as our heavenly father is eternal, and this is the realm over which he exercises authority, and this is the purpose for which he disciplines. It has a spiritual emphasis. It is not like the discipline of our earthly fathers. So we have one kind of father in our flesh and another with respect to the spirit. Second is the time of our fathers. The time of our earthly fathers is shown as past tense in verse 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Past tense. Actually, it's a, it's a past tense with an ongoing action that shows that while our fathers were alive, that their influence on us in discipline was to continue. This is, this is an important, important element that is completely lost in our culture. Discipline, of course, of itself is almost completely lost in our culture. But never would we understand that the discipline would extend on beyond that time of adolescence. But that's exactly what is reflected in these verses. Now, this helps us realize, beloved, that in disciplining our children, we're not strictly speaking of physical discipline. Yes, as our children are, are young, physical discipline is the way that they are to be disciplined. And Proverbs speaks about that. But as they mature, there is a transition and there is a parallel where we take that physical discipline and we pair a verbal correction and we pair an education along with that physical discipline. And as the child grows and becomes more mature, our discipline switches from physical to verbal. And that verbal discipline is to continue on throughout our lives. And our fathers have that authority, as this text tells us. It's important to emphasize that although here fathers and sons are what are mentioned, that mothers and daughters are likewise included. Mothers also have that role of discipline in the family. Daughters also are subject to that discipline. Sorry, girls, I know that might have sounded okay for a while, but you're included also here. The point that we notice in fathers being specifically mentioned is they are the ones with the role of oversight. They are the ones who are to make certain that the discipline is being carried forward, whether it is through them or that it is with their mother. Also, we see here, our Heavenly Father's time is described as a future tense action because it is yet still coming. Now, as you look at verse 9, you might be asking, where is that future tense reference in verse 9? Well, maybe some of you, if you have junior hires or high school, they can help you a little bit here with some of the grammar as my kids help me. But that would indeed be an excellent question to find out where that future tense is. And the answer is in the helping verb shall in verse 9. Shall we not much rather be subject? Shall is a future tense element. Shall we not much rather be subject to them? Our heavenly father who exercises eternal authority is shown to do so in the future because he will for all time have that authority on us. So the two kinds of time are contrasted in addition to the two types of kinds. Third, and perhaps the most important aspect of the contrast of our relation to these two types of fathers, we are to have respect for our earthly fathers. This is in line with the Ten Commandments. Does anyone know which commandment it is that tells us about Honoring our fathers and mothers. It is our fourth commandment. It is the first non-divine commandment that begins the rest of the Ten Commandments. The commandment repeatedly stated also in the New Testament. 
So we are to respect, we are to honor our fathers and mothers, and we are to honor and respect them in discipline. But with our Heavenly Father, notice we are not just to respect, but we are to be subject to them at the end of verse 9. Well, what does that term be subject to mean? To put ourselves in full submission under His authority is what it means. Now, we understand this word submission very clearly. And perhaps for some of the ladies in our audience, this has become a difficult term. Certainly the ladies in our culture see this as a very difficult term. They see this word as meaning doormat, which is not at all what the word means. It rather is to put oneself voluntarily under the headship of another. And yet it is not respect that we are to have for God. Respect for our earthly fathers, that is the relation to them. But our relationship to God for His discipline is to be subject to it, to willingly put ourselves underneath that discipline, to receive it. This very particular terminology is driving us to the parallel application of respect versus subjection. If we respect our earthly fathers, this is mandated for one who is a worshiper of God. It's been a requirement since the beginning. It is in the Ten Commandments. So then, ought we not much more be subject to our Heavenly Father? The content of this subjection is in receiving His discipline. Not only are we to be subject to the Father of Spirits as we respect our earthly fathers, but verse 9 says that we are to do so much more. We owe a much greater respect, a much greater submission to our Heavenly Father. And yet the first of three powerhouses that will conclude this section also comes up for us at the end of verse 9. These three, these three sections reflect the next component of structure which God has designed into discipline. And this is another aspect of our third point, discipline structure. And the impact of our obedience to our earthly father, you know it's not stated. It just says that we are to do it. We can imply that all that would result from that obedience, and there is great, there is great blessing from obedience to the discipline of our earthly fathers. There is great joy in that relationship. There is a continual building and bonding and recognition that as difficult as it is for our fathers to bring discipline to us, that they do so for our good and they do so to carry us forward and to teach us. But for honoring our Heavenly Father, we're told what the result will be. And it says that we will live. And yet, not just receive the benefit of discipline, but we receive life. Now, initially, as we read that at the end of verse 9, as we receive, much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live, we may think, well, isn't that the same thing from our earthly fathers? I mean, we get a good life if we receive and respect and obey their discipline. But it is so much more. Because this is a future tense verb that's talking about future life. The future life that we get for subjecting ourselves, putting ourselves under the discipline of God, is eternal life. That is the gift that we receive from Him. That is the blessing of obedience. The wonderful delight of eternal life with Him. Another incredible result of obedience. The first of three, as I mentioned in our section. Verse 10 continues the parallel of the two fathers and explains more fully the comparison just described, where it says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Verse 10 begins with our earthly father, so we have the contrast again. And the short time does not mean that our fathers only had short lives or that they were only disciplining us while we were adolescents. Many did live long lives, and we just discussed their proper roles as disciplinarians were to extend throughout the time of their life having an impact upon their children. Thus, they did as seemed best to them, the verse says 
there in verse 10. Literally, as appeared to be good to them. This isn't alluding to the fact that our fathers really didn't know what they were doing. And, and all of us as dads, if we're really going to be honest with one another, there are times where we feel that way. I'm just not exactly certain about what I'm doing and, and what my role is here and what is the proper thing to do in the discipline. But that's not what's being spoken of here. It's simply indicating that our earthly fathers have natural limitations. They are sinners like us. And that, that limitation of sin as they try to discipline their children causes them to have challenges in that role. But in contrast, our heavenly Father disciplines us for our good. Literally, for that which is good or for that which is for our profit. That which appears good to the earthly fathers, which appears good, is being contrasted to that which is good as it comes from our heavenly Father. God's discipline is perfect and always exactly as is necessary exactly as is needful and will bring the best results to those who yield to it. Verse 9 ended with the powerful result of eternal life and verse 10's conclusion is even more incredible where it says, so that we may share in his holiness. So that we may share in his holiness. Holiness is one of the, the non-communicable perfections of God or attributes of God. That which belongs to Him alone. When we think of holiness, we don't think of some people who are, who are close, who are, who are getting there. It is God alone who is holy. It, it, holiness means to be separate. It means to be other or different. And this separation or otherness is, is related to sin. God is totally separate from sin. Psalm 5.4 tells us, that no evil dwells with him. As one commentator well notes, God hol God's holiness means not only that he himself is separate from all sin, but also he judges all sin and must judge. He is the one who for the cherubim and the seraphim proclaim, holy, 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 day and night, crying out, the glory and the holiness of God. And yet, now, we are told that through His discipline of us, we are able to share in this holiness. You know, the Apostle Peter, as he quoted Leviticus, told us to be holy for He was holy. And although this will only be ultimately achieved in heaven, there is, beloved, a partaking of holiness now. And it happens through discipline. How incredible is that thought? No less than understanding the vision of Isaiah 6 as he stood before the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel as he fell down before the wheels within the wheels. John as he stood before the Lord in Revelation 1 and 4 and 5. Or even Moses at the burning bush. And here, we not only behold the living God, but we are through His grace and His love and through His discipline, we become sharers of this glorious holiness. Amazing. We are given eternal life. We are given holiness. And then verse 11 brings conclusion to this great section on discipline where it says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The verse begins by recognizing the obvious difficulty with discipline. It, it's, it's not joyful. Rather, it's sorrowful. That word literally is, it is of grief or it is of great pain. In short, there's nothing to be enjoyed in the process of discipline. It's not like we ought to be rejoicing and wanting more. No, it's acknowledged that it is painful and difficult and hard. And all who have been disciplined understand that. And if any don't understand that, go back to verse 8 and recognize what he speaks about those who are not disciplined. 
But despite this sorrow, there is a positive side. Discipline is something which can be effective to train the believer. The, the word train here is the Greek word gymnazo, which is where we get our word gymnasium. So as we allow ourselves to endure and to learn from the processes of discipline, it is as effective as one who daily goes to the gymnasium to work out. But the outcome of this training is far beyond any workout requirement or regimen. And we see the result of that at the end of verse 11. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As, as we allow God's discipline to train us, the result is righteousness. Right living before men. When we are able to walk and when we are seen by those around us as those who are living in honor of God's word, the way that we speak, the way that we interact with others, that is the right living which righteousness yields. But there is also the right thinking in and of ourselves. A recognition that our thought life must be in honor to God. It must also be righteous. Scripture tells us that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are not allowing our minds to run amok. We are not following these horrific thoughts that come into our minds, but we are squashing them and saying, no, these must not be brought forward. These have to be put back, and I must bring all of this into the obedience of God. This is righteous thinking, and it is right living, right thinking, and therein right standing before God. And the outcome of this is peace. James 3.17 talks about this. And in James 3 and 17, he writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is telling us that as wisdom comes from God and that it brings these attributes of purity and peaceableness and gentleness and reasonableness, these are those elements of righteous living and righteous thinking. That there is an unwavering element to this man's life without hypocrisy. And the seed of these things are the fruit of righteousness. And there is a peace that comes with them. When we live in a righteous manner, when we are in a righteous standing before the world, when we are carrying forward in a righteous thought process, there is a peace, a peace that covers all of our lives through this. This is that peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it results because we know that our souls are in harmony with the Father. That we are receiving the discipline and that we are carrying forward. Beloved, do you have this peace? These are three incredible results of discipline. This is discipline structure, which God has designed that through God's discipline, we receive eternal life, we become sharers of his holiness, and we enjoy the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline is, is not a topic that we run to to talk about. But the outcome is exceptional. Think about all of this confirmation of our adoption as sons. What a glorious privilege that is. Knowing the love of God, how do we delight to realize that God loves us? Receiving endurance to walk as the, as the path becomes difficult, that we have the endurance because of discipline, that we have eternal life as a result of discipline, that we have holiness as a result of discipline, and that we have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. These are incredible blessings, aren't they? Is there anyone who wouldn't want all of these? No, there's not. But they come at a cost, and that cost is discipline. It's appropriate that we address this topic of discipline at this time of year, because many less than delightful topics are being exposed during this season. You know, we come to New Year's and many are making resolutions on such distasteful topics. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to lose weight. 
I'm going to start going to the gym. Well, how about we consider going to the Lord's gym? How about recognizing the blessing of being trained by the Lord's discipline? You know, none of us know what's ahead for this new year. For at least four of the dear families in our church, this year is transitioning with the loss of a loved one. Enduring grief and mourning, it's part of the Lord's plan. He has orchestrated it. And how we each respond to this comes back to the issue we began with this morning. That is, it is an issue of the heart. In our minds, as we understand discipline and we think about it, our natural reaction is to find a way around it, to figure out how to skirt it so that we don't have to endure it. Because it is not fun. In fact, as we've read, it is painful. It is grievous. But that's only our head knowledge. When we realize all that discipline brings, then our heart knowledge ought to be completely different. We ought to recognize that as discipline comes, it must be embraced. It will not be joyful. It will not be easy. But it yields such amazing blessings. It yields love. It yields adoption. It yields endurance. It yields eternal life, holiness, and a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And for this We have been called to submit. We have been given the privilege to submit, but only for those who know Jesus Christ. Only for those who recognize that this is a very different mindset because it is not just head knowledge, but it has made it to our heart. And God has struck our hearts. And we have recognized that in and of ourselves, we would not pursue this path. But Christ has shown us this way. And he has paved the way for us in all of these things so that we might live these lives, so that we are able. And he calls today. If you do not understand what it means, if if this seems totally contrary to your mindset, then today is the day to recognize that it may be because you do not yet know Christ. That you would open your eyes eyes, that you would open your heart, that you would recognize that today Christ is calling you to come, to confess the sins that are in your life and to repent of them, to pursue him and his word in obedience. Because only then will you know, only then will you be able to have this heart knowledge and to receive these amazing gifts. God is desirous, beloved, of molding and shaping our hearts to be like his. You know, it's been stated that there is a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. And until that hole is filled with the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives are incomplete. But let's purpose this year to fill that hole. Let's resolve to grow together in obedience to embrace God's word and to draw together as we see one another going through discipline, that we may encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near as our scripture earlier read spoke about. Even in difficult things like discipline, for here in these challenging aspects of life, we find the greatest blessings. It's my prayer that the greatest blessings that are available on this earth would be yours and that they would be yours in abundance. And yet those blessings come only through an obedient life to Jesus Christ. May this be a new year of your pursuing him in a new and zealous and unmitigated way. And may God be praised as we seek to do so.